I walk in and this lady from Emirates comes quite quickly, almost running over to me. She goes, hey, Mr. Ross Smith. I said, yes. She goes, I've been expecting you. Let me take your bags. I'll check you in now. I went, what? <laughs> like I've flown probably, I don't know, a thousand flights in my life, right? I've never had this happen once. She's like, you look taller in real life than you do on Instagram. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, hang on, my Instagram is private. How do you even see this for a start, right? I'm like, what else do you know about me? She's like, you know, we research all our important guests. Hello, my name is Lauren D'Souza, and you're listening to Retain, the Customer Retention Podcast. More and more companies are wanting to focus on retaining customers, but what exactly are the powers of customer retention and how are companies using it to keep their customers coming back for more? That's what we're here to find out. Welcome back, everybody. Our guest for today is loyalty expert, Mark Ross-Smith. Mark is a CEO and co-founder of statusmatch.com, a platform that allows travelers to obtain elite status with airlines and hotels by matching their existing status with other loyalty programs. Mark is a seasoned executive with over 20 years of experience in the travel industry and is now considered an airline loyalty thought leader. Mark is also a regular speaker at industry conferences and events, sharing his insights on the future of loyalty programs. Mark, it's really great to have you on the podcast. Lauren, it's fabulous to be here. I am thrilled for the conversation we're about to have. We were just talking about how I love to travel, so... (laughs) I'm curious to know how you even got started in this whole space. So why don't we start there? Tell me a little bit more about your background and what got you into the airline industry to start. I think you're a travel geek. I'm a travel geek. So I think this is <laughs> going to be interesting. And anyone who's into travel is going to like this, I think. Like most travel nerds, you know, I've been into airlines and flying as long as I can remember. When I was about five or six years old, my parents bought me this book. It was like a coffee table book. So a big, thick book, big image, high-res photos. And it was called Great Airliners of the World. And in the centerfold of this book, it's a thick book. In the centerfold is this double page spread of this Air New Zealand DC 10 aircraft. And at the bottom, there was a caption that said, This plane tragically crashed into a mountain in Antarctica in 1979. Still remember that all these years later. And my parents had booked us a family trip to Disneyland later that year. And they'd booked it on flying Air New Zealand. And so, you know, for the weeks and months leading up to that trip, I was like, crying and screaming like we're not flying we're going to crash and burn like (laughs) air new zealand's not safe it's not a good airline so you know at seven years old i'm suddenly an expert on aviation and which brands you know you fly and you don't fly (laughs) obviously that wasn't the case it was a very memorable trip i have fond memories of it we flew air new zealand so what really hooked me at that point was on those air new zealand flights there was two things that really stood out one i mean as a child flying right one was the hard-boiled little candies they would give out before takeoff and on descent, you know, you suck on it so your ears don't, you know, as yeah. a kid, that it's just free candy. So, of course, <laughs> yeah. say yes, right? Thrilling. So, there's that and the kids' activity packs that they sort mm-hmm. of hand out, they still do today, you know, the coloring in books, that kind of stuff. And there I got those cool Qantas little... as a kid all the time. Love the Qantas ones. <laughs> Actually, you know, funny story, Qantas packs, I wrote a letter as a, I think it was nine years old. I wrote a letter to Qantas management, like hand wrote it, nailed no it, put a stamp on it. I was nine years old. So you can imagine nine-year-old boys writing, right? Not great. Send them a letter <laughs> complaining about their kids' packs and they weren't You're doing kidding. enough for children on the flight. A true story. Funny enough, I wrote it on paper. I lined blue lined paper I'd received from an Air New Zealand flight as well. <laughs> anyway, so I wrote That's got a sting. <laughs> 
I've just complained, not enough for kids. And I got a letter back, right? I mean, this is in the early 90s. There's no email yet, right? And they'd say, you know, sorry, we're going to do, I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember the exact, but, you know, sorry, we're going to do more for children, da, 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 all this nice stuff. And then for the next five or six years after that, every time Qantas would release a new children's pack, they would mail me one in the mail. Are you serious? So, yeah. So this is the early 90s. They introduced a thing called the Max Pack. And showing my age here. It'd be like a backpack and inside it, all sorts of cool little stickers and books and stuff. I never And so, that. you know, for many years, I'd just start receiving these things in the mail every time there was a new thing. And, you know, obviously that's pretty cool in itself, you know, yeah, like a 10 year old wow. receiving stuff from a major corporation in the mail every you know, quarter. So cool. And what that did is, it just reinforced in my mind, like, this is like the industry for me. This is what I want to do. If they can look after a nine-year-old that writes a letter, right, in the 90s, it just became really fascinated with it. And obviously, the stars were a bit aligned there and hence in the industry. That is really cool. And I'm pretty upset because when I was a kid flying on Qantas, it was the early 2000s and I didn't get any backpacks. So I'm going to write them a letter right now. <laughs> have really terrible handwriting. Just say you're a nine-year-old. <laughs> See I could do it. Works. I could definitely do it. Yeah. Try with your left hand. Oh, that's awesome. And so that explains the context behind the airline industry. But what got you intrigued by the whole area of loyalty and kind of what got you started in that area? Yeah. So my first real job when I was 18 was managing customer retention for an e-commerce business. So this nice. is in the dot-com days, basically. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is back when if you knew how to do HTML, be paid a lot of money to work <laughs> Not these days. A lot of money to work company in IUHTML. I had taught myself. And, you know, they're like, oh, well, you can run customer retention. You can do that. It was only like two people doing it in the company, mind <laughs> you. not a big organization. And it was like a membership recurring type business model they had. And I got to see things like people when they cancel their membership, like reasons they would want to cancel. And you start seeing this all day. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was already inquisitive and entrepreneurial already. So you start thinking like, well, if you don't want to pay this, what would you pay for? Right. Or how could I get you to stay? Like, what would it take? And people that write in say, urgently, you must cancel me right now because I've got a car payment coming up and I have to cancel this now to make yeah. sure that it's things like that. Right. And we started figuring out that there's actually a bunch of stuff that people would pay for within a customer retention model. Right. So people would pay for things like, priority support, right? To get their ticket or their email read faster right. than someone else, right? And we actually started charging a few dollars to have priority support. You know, if you want a reply within a day, click here, pay $3, $3 was the time. Really? Okay. Yeah. And people did it. And suddenly there's a revenue stream there for something we're going to do anyway, right? That's so, crazy. you know, working that job was really good because I sort of drilled into head the uh, whole customer retention. So, like, there's no university well, back then. There's no way you learn this stuff. It's just sheer experience. Right. And being the first real job I had, it was pretty eye-opening. And, you know, if you can sort of combine the customer retention with uh, just total obsession with airline stuff, Good there's thing. a Venn diagram there somewhere and you can guess where I ended up. Yeah, that's awesome. And along the way, you had so many cool experiences, including working with Malaysia Airlines as well, which I saw, which is really cool. But I want to dive into statusmatch.com. So obviously you had all these wonderful experiences from that first job in customer retention all the way to where you're at right now. And so what inspired you to build statusmatch.com? How did it all start? So I started in 2014. So I'm Australian and I decided I need to move overseas at that point. And so I relocated to Hong Kong. It was either cool. Singapore, Hong Kong, which one am I going to move to? I thought, oh, I like Hong Kong. Let's go there. 
And at the time, I was one of Qantas's top frequent flyers in Australia. So I had like their super VIP, 100 flights a year kind of right. customer. I was, I was spending a lot of money. I just sold my business as well. So I had a bit of time. Nice. And so I asked Cathay Pacific for what's called a status match. So loosely, the idea is whatever status you have with one brand. So let's say it's like a gold level. The idea is an airline or hotel will match your status. So they'll give you the equivalent with them straight off the bat without having to qualify, like without having to do the flights or the hotel nights or whatever. And the idea is you've got gold over here. We'll give you gold with us. Now shift some business to us, right? Because you're used to the perks, you're used to the benefits. You don't want to start from the bottom because you've, yeah. quote, proven yourself to the industry. It doesn't really cost airlines to do this, right? So I asked them for a status match and they said no. And I thought, what the heck are these guys thinking? I spent all this money, probably nearly a hundred thousand bucks a year on flying. That was quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And like, why don't you want me as a customer? I don't get it. And that's what kind of kickstarted the whole journey into status match where I started attending industry events just to learn about. I mean, I had no job at that point. While the company, I'm like, what am I going to do next? New city, new job. Great. So started going to industry events and I thought, oh, this airline stuff's great. And, you know, being a customer of airlines, right? So I was actually using their product, right? And what I figured out very quickly is that in some ways I felt I knew more than some of these airline executives because I was a customer. And you could see that Ooh. at some of these events, the way they would talk and the conversations you would have with them were very easy because you're a customer. You know you exactly at- what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you work at an airline, you don't spend a hundred thousand bucks a year on flights. Exactly. But not even own a hundred thousand. And when you do fly, you're flying on a staff ticket. It's cheap, perhaps standby. The ticket is very different. The way you check in is very different. The perks, the benefits, even things like getting a meal on board might be very different. So it's a right. totally different customer journey. So that's kind of what sort of started Status Match. And then what I realized is I didn't have enough experience. I needed to get in the industry. <laughs> Shock. And so that started the journey. You know, how do I work for an airline? How do I get experience on airline? I didn't want to start at the bottom. So I started a blog, started just putting stuff out there. And this is sort of learning from my previous days about customer retention and stuff. And from a customer perspective, how I thought airlines could make more money from loyalty based on my experience with actually flying and stuff, putting that out there. Suddenly start getting invites to events as a media person now, aka a blogger. And then, you know, sort of snowballed a bit and then eventually got a phone call from Leisure Airlines one day. Hey, do you want to run our loyalty program? Okay, cool. Did that. Had a lot of fun there. And then that sort of checked a few boxes and totally a big educational piece as well. You know, learned a lot there. Yeah. And so, you know, that sort of completed the two hemispheres that I needed. I needed the experience of working now. I needed that. And those two came together and then sort of COVID hit. And then I thought, you know, how do we help save the airline industry? What could I possibly do in my little piece of the world? And that's what kind of when Status Match was born, just solving a problem that's been there for both airlines and travelers for many, many years. That is so cool. And so in your time of getting this experience and learning this whole educational piece to this, what have you found are the main reasons that loyalty programs are so valuable for the airline industry? Because obviously all these airlines have these points and things like that. And it's obviously common knowledge, but what's the real reason as to why these loyalty programs are so valuable for this industry? So it's all about the type of revenue that the airline loyalty programs generate, right? So especially in North America, I mean, everyone's seen the credit cards. You know, airlines are always for get this credit card, earn this many miles, you know, this kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So fun fact, a lot of airlines make billions of dollars from these credit cards. They're very valuable to the point where there's a bunch of airlines out there where the loyalty program is more valuable than the entire darn airline group itself. Seriously? Right? Yeah, seriously. 
And what's driving the economics here is they're effectively selling points of miles to banks, right? So you use your credit card, you swipe, it's a $100 transaction, you earn 100 points, right? It's the bank buying 100 points off the airline loans program, putting it into your account, right? And the margin on those points can be quite high, right? So it can be anywhere between 30 to 70%, right? It's high margin revenue versus... When you buy a ticket with an airline, let's say, for example, you're flying to London, right? And it's 500 bucks in economy, right? Think about what kind of margin they've got on that ticket. It's not much, Mm. 5% maybe at best, right? All the operational nonsense and risks that come along with that. Whereas when you're selling points to banks, there's no runways, there's no aircraft, there's no pilots, there's no fuel, there's no unions. You're selling something that doesn't exist technically. You know, it's just a database entry that someone may never use. And when they do use it in two or three years' time, right, you redeem it for a seat that probably is going to be unsold anyway. So loyalty programs in airline and hotel are quite valuable because of the type of revenue they generate. It's high margin revenue versus airline revenue. It's typically not so high margin. Right. And I guess the main point that you're making here is those operating costs aren't a part of that entire margin that they're looking at. So they're just selling inventory of nothing, essentially. (laughs) They need the airline to exist, right? So if the airline collapses, then the Lord's program value erodes very quickly. They need each other. But you know, if you had a choice, if you're sitting at the top and you go, do I put a dollar profit into the airline business or a dollar profit into the loyalty business? You would put the profit into the loyalty business because the way the market will value that $1 is somewhere between 30 to 40 times profit earnings ratio. So that $1 will be worth about 30 to 40 times in the market. Whereas a $1 profit in the airline at best, if you're an amazing airline like Singapore Airlines or an Emirates or someone like that, at yeah. best, you're going to get like a 10 times profit earnings. So right. it's worth 10 bucks an airline and 30 to $40 in a loyalty business. And so what we've seen is airlines, especially in North America, have leveraged the valuation of these loyalty programs to secure loans, to buy new aircraft. They're using it to secure funding, basically. So they're not necessarily selling the equity, they're mortgaging it effectively to get something else to prop up the airlines, new seats, new planes, you know, new stuff because the lots of program and the airline, they need each other at the end of the day. Yeah. They're just making the money more efficient basically through these loyalty programs. Correct. Exactly. Interesting. Out of curiosity, what's your favorite airline? My favorite airline to fly as a passenger today is Qatar Airways. I would say it's probably the best economy class in the world today. I mean, economy mm-hmm. class is economy class, right? But it's probably the best business class as well. They're Q suites. But, you know, it's changed over the years. I think when you fly one particular airline over and over and over and over, you'd get used to it. And like, oh, that's my favorite airline because I always fly whoever, Hawaiian Airlines, whatever it is, right? But then you try something new and you see differences. You go, oh, this is kind of, is the grass really greener on the other side? (laughs) Not always, but sometimes. So Qatar is probably my favorite right now. However, you know, I sort of travel between Singapore and Malaysia quite a lot Mm. and I enjoy Singapore Airlines on this flight only because they fly A350. So it's a wide body aircraft for like a 40 minute flight. Exactly. There's a lot of space. But you know what? Actually, the best airline, they're not my favorite, but the best airline to fly is actually the one that gives you an upgrade. (laughs) Doesn't matter who that is. (laughs) Honestly, I'll take it. I have no issue with that. (laughs) Exactly. Awesome. So first things first, loyalty, there's so much that goes under that. And there's so many different aspects to it. And we kind of just branded as this one big term as loyalty. But if we're looking at loyalty programs specifically, what do you think is a common misconception about loyalty programs? Yeah, I think one is that it's a customer service function. Or the second, maybe another one is that points are free. It doesn't cost anything. You're giving stuff away for these points. You know, it's fluffy. 
it's the coloring in department. It's not loyalty is serious. I mean, look at airlines. Loyalty is worth more than the whole airline itself. So what's the real business? Are you an airline or you're a marketing company? You're a marketing company. You're a loyalty company, right? So true. So, you know, points are not free. They do cost. There is real economics behind it. when that happens. <laughs> yeah. Killjoy here. I'll talk about finance. <laughs> you know, I think loyalty, especially in travel context, should always be set up to drive specific outcomes, right? So in airline, that is to, there's a few things. There's one to sell more tickets, right? It's to buy more when you buy a flight. So instead of buying that just dirt cheapest economy class flight, the idea is, well, I might try premium economy because I'm going to earn more points or I'll buy the extra whatever because I, well, I get lounge access. So it's okay to pay 200 more to fly this airline versus this airline. Yes. Yeah. Things like that. And that's when they can start tracking it and they know that, well, the loyalty program is working because you're mm-hmm. displaying behavior. You're not buying the cheapest possible option out there. You're buying something more expensive than you otherwise need to. They're selling more stuff. They're shifting behavior. And yeah. so outside airline is really, it's all about shifting behavior, create that stickiness to the brand. It doesn't mean you're going to be super loyal, just like you're only ever engaged with one airline. Yeah. It just means that you've got a choice, right? You've got two cards in your wallet. You have to make a flight to London next week. And it's like, I could fly 30 different airlines, but I've got a gold card with this one. So I'll just look at them first. Yeah. No, it's literally true, which is why I chose Air Canada over British Airways. So... <laughs> Exactly that. (laughs) But I think it also applies outside the airline industry as well, though, because you're effectively saying loyalty in itself is almost like a product under a business versus just a slap onto the customer service. Like it's not something to just patch onto customer service and sell as a side thought. It's actually something as part of the function of the business. And so it can be more successful that way if you tie it to actual business outcomes or what you're trying to accomplish in order to upsell or change that behavior or whatever you might be trying to do. So I guess on that note, do you think that loyalty programs play a role in both attracting and retaining customers or more shifted towards one or the other? I mean, a great loyalty program does both, right? So a really good program won't work for every customer. And I don't think it should. I want to say 20 or 30% of customers, it probably should work really well for where they get value out of it. And it does shift behavior. It does get them to buy more, to spend more, to come back the second time, to repeat purchase, whatever the metric is that you're tracking. Why um, is that only 20 to 30%, do you think? If it was 100% of people got value from the laws of program, you're kind of cannibalizing your own business at that point, right? You're giving, for example, points away to everyone, no matter what. They're going to come shop with you anyway, but you're giving points yeah. away to everyone. Right. Ideally, in a perfect world, you're only giving points and benefits to people who may not have been going to come shop with you. You know what I mean? Because then you can show that you're driving incremental spend or incremental business or share of wallet or some other metric. Right. So there's a bunch of people that are just going to come to brand no matter what, because it's next door to the house. It's the most convenient. One of their friends works there or they own some shares in the whatever it is. There's some other reason that they're doing it. You know, for some other people, it's about price. They're coming to buy the product because it's just the cheapest and that's how they roll. Status benefits, like ego recognition, that kind of stuff. Ultra powerful. Look at the top end of the world, right? People with money, right? Here's a good example. Go try and buy a new Ferrari today. Walk into a dealership, try and buy like the most expensive I mean, thing they've got, right? I could try. They know I'd be successful. They won't sell you. You go with like 10 million cash and you say, I want this. They say, no. They say, you need to be a member first. You need to buy a car first. And once you've bought that, you're a customer. And then we'll let you maybe get the option to buy this other car. Really? Right? Yeah. There's quite a lot of brands. They work just like this. 
And so what it means is you've got like status is basically driving stuff. Money's just commodity at this point, right? It's not about that, right? And so the amount of room to sort of move the needle on these people's spend, right? It's just so astronomical at the top end. Yeah. Right? So in airline loyalty, people with like a silver gold type status, platinum and airline, they're normally the top 5% of customers, but they're responsible for anywhere between 20 and 30% of total revenue for the entire airline, right? So as a group, they're the single most valuable customers. Right. So hence, most loyalty programs seem to be geared towards the big corporates, the frequent flyers, the people in business and first class, because that's just where the money is, yeah. right? And if they lose one of these customers, they're losing potentially 50, 100,000 bucks a year out of someone. Whereas you or me or Uncle John down the street wants a year to visit grandma on the $200 flight. <laughs> I mean, do they really care? You're telling me they don't want to put me in first class from me paying the lowest How dare they? fare? That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, so that's a good point because I think naturally it's about the distribution of the spend of a customer, whether it's airline or not. But the natural fall of how customers spend and 20% of your customers give you 80% of your revenue in a general sense. So with that in mind, what do you think are some of the most important factors to consider when designing loyalty programs? Get the economics right from day one. I know it's boring. No one really wants to do it. But you know, you're going to get finance people involved and sort of set the ground rules, get the model right. Because you know, if you screw it up, it just gets worse over time. The problem sort of yes. gets bigger and bigger as it scales. And so you just need to really nail it down from day one. Plus, there's also bad customer experience. You launch something and then six months later, you go, oh, well, we need to give you less points or we're taking away this benefit. <laughs> oh, gosh, how terrible is it? You know, instead of buy five coffees, get one free, you know, you go, oh, well, now it's buy 10, get one free. It's like, mm. well, hang on a sec. You just yes, feel that up on me. cheated, you know? So yeah. just getting it right from day one, I think is ultra critical. You know, I've heard of one of the VPs at Air Canada talking about this, how when they redesigned the airplane program, I want to say three years ago, I'm pretty sure he said publicly that they involved like 10 or 15 different consulting firms and had yeah. them all doing pretty much the same work. Because if they all came to the same conclusion about how the economics and stuff would work, then they're on the right path. Right. So it's not just, you know, getting one consultant to do something. Yeah. I mean, obviously this is a big example, big brand in a big country where there's a lot of billions of dollars at stake. Right. So yeah. it makes sense to do that. Doesn't quite make sense for mom and pa's ice cream shop to get 15 McKinsey consultants on this kind of thing <laughs> for that. You get the idea, right? It's just, yeah. just nail down the economics first because everything else, the benefits, the promotions, all, all the kind of window dressing will just support whatever that economic model is. So get it right from the beginning. Yeah, that's true. And actually, it's something that we do on our consultation calls with Gameball anyways, because we've really come to realize that a good, strong retention strategy in general to do with loyalty programs is really about getting the economics right and getting the scale right. Because there's so many times where it can be done where you're giving too many points away. It's too hard for someone to get to a certain point. There's so many different adjusting things. And the fact is, you do really have to base it off of your user behavior because it's depending on how each of your customers react in those situations. So it's a good point. And I'm curious to know when you set up these different programs and for example, with Aeroplan and relaunching that whole strategy, they want to understand how they measure this impact of these loyalty programs. And obviously the obvious answer is an increased revenues and more bookings and things like that. But are there any other underlying or not so obvious ways to measure impact of loyalty programs for a business? So in the airline world, the golden metric is share of wallet or share of spend. 
right? Okay. And what that means is, let's say we're both top-tier platinum members of an airline, right? Yeah. And you're doing uh, 100 flights a year, right? So you're spending $100,000. You're in business in first class. You're jetting all around the world. You know, you're a great customer. The airline looks at you, you're going to go, Top tier, you're flying a lot. This is amazing, right? And then they look at me. I'm not platinum. They look at me. They say, here's this smart guy. He did four flights with us last year, right? Really cheap flights. Like, who's the more loyal customer, right? So if you look at it, you go, well, you, Lauren is not Mark, right? But if they drill down to share a wallet, what they would see is I only did four flights in total. As in, I flew with no other airlines at all, right? That was 100% of my travel with one brand, right? So I'm loyal. Check. And they look at you and they go, you know, Lauren's done all this flying, great, but she's also done another 50 flights with Delta Airlines, another 20 flights with Hawaiian, another three with Emirates. And, a, you know, yeah. actually she's worth more, but less loyal. So what that means is the ability to capture more spend out of you is a high chance of doing that than out of me. Because out of me, the airlines are already getting 100% what they could possibly get. They're just not going to get it. Maybe they convinced me to go visit grandma one more time because she's getting old, right? That's bad. <laughs> yeah. And that's 200 bucks. But for you, it's like they could convince you to drop one of the Emirates first class trips and instead fly a Star Alliance partner or something mm-hmm. like that, right? right? So when you measure the loyalty in that sense, you know who to target better promotions to. So that in that case, they'd be better off targeting more to you, even though it looks like you're already a fantastic customer because there's right. more headroom for them to capture more revenue from you. Yeah, so I call that one point. of the golden metrics in airline loyalty. I actually think that's quite applicable to other industries as well. Because I even think the very first example that came to mind when you said that the share of wallet and the spend is honestly thinking about something like cosmetics, because you have examples like in Canada, one of the bigger brands here is Sephora, and they have all these different brands. And then all those different brands obviously have their own independent brands. So it's a consistent fight, whether I buy from the Merit brand from their store or from Sephora, where I'm more likely to go to Sephora because I buy a bunch of different products from different brands and I'll get more savings if I do it all under Sephora versus going to each and every single one of those independent brands. But it's a consistent fight and it's an always everlasting head-to-head battle because they're trying to get me to spend more and be loyal to the independent brand versus the Sephoras of the world. So I think it speaks to your point of it could be applicable to other industries as well or the way that people think about designing their own loyalty programs. Because... Even just when people listen to this podcast, for example, they're thinking of ideas or things like that, that they can apply to their own loyalty programs so that they come up with something that's unique and interesting. And I find the best ideas come from alternative or parallel examples that aren't exactly related to their business because it can be a really nice example from something completely different. I agree. And another question from that would be, do you want people loyal to your brand or people loyal to a channel that they buy a product through, right? So... Good example is hotels, right? So hotels yeah. want you to quote book direct, go to the hotel website.com. Right. Not, they don't want you to go to Expedia or anything like that. They want to go direct because they got to pay more commissions when you go to OTA, right? But like, why is that your problem? You're yeah. probably paying about the same rate anyway. It's not their problem. Yeah. They're paying commissions in the back. You just happen to like using Expedia better than hotels on website, for example, you know, or maybe you prefer to buy your cosmetics in duty-free catalogs and stuff, you know, because mm-hmm. you're earning airline miles at that point. Whereas you're not earning when you walk into the Sephora store, presumably, right? Yeah. So maybe it's yeah. purely about that, right? And so, you know, you're still loyal to the brand. It's just, you're not loyal to walking into their store, which is 
different. So like, which would the brand prefer? Would they rather you take one or the other? So I, I mean, I think I know what I would choose if I was a brand, but nailing that is pretty critical too. Yeah, I guess it's important too. And I guess that also ties back to the point that you made that it's not just a part of your customer service. It's actually a whole strategy on the side of your business or as part of your business, because it's important to get all those factors right. Because I guess you could really do something interesting with thinking about it in that way as well. Yep. Well, I think that's a lovely place to end the conversation that we've had today. And thank you so much for sharing all those insights. We have one last little section, which is my absolute favorite part of the entire show, which is called the lightning round. So first lightning round question is, what is the most interesting place you've ever traveled to and why? I really like Malaysia because there's so many storms here. And I'm totally obsessed <laughs> with storms and lightning and stuff really? like that. Yeah, every day. This one. I go outside, look in the balcony, just watch it. I love that stuff. So purely from that alone, Malaysia is fantastic. That's However, cool. I think my favorite place is probably Hong Kong. You know, I lived there for many years. It's high vibes. It's fast paced, strong work ethic, strong party ethic. They sort of get everything right. It's a great place to grow up in. So Very cool. Okay. Second question. If you were in control of the marketing effort for one city, which city would you love to try and sell to people? And how would you market it? There's a bit of a spoken from Malaysia, isn't it? So Penang, <laughs> Malaysia. So Tourism Malaysia, if you're listening, we'll talk about commission flavor. Uh, <laughs> I choose Penang because it's been voted you know, best street food in Asia for many years running. Yes. And, you know, obviously I run Status Batch as well. And, you know, I'd strike deals, all international airlines that fly there. And with the tourism board there as well, which is me for a day, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I'd get the tourism board to fund a status match campaign to attract new high value customers to the city. And I think the tagline would be something like visit Penang. It's like Singapore, but 60% cheaper and with better food. <laughs> <laughs> you have me sold. <laughs> Incredible. All right. Last but not least on the lightning round, what's the best experience on an airline that you've ever had? Oh, hands down. End of last year was Emirates. I walked into the Kuala Lumpur International Airport, just into the terminal. Mm. It's like midnight. There's no one in the terminal, right? So I had like a 2 a.m. departure. I walk in and this lady from Emirates comes quite quickly, almost running over to me. She goes, hey, Mr. Ross Smith. I said, yes. She goes, I've been expecting you. Let me take your bags. I'll check you in now. I went, what? <laughs> like I've flown probably, I don't know, a thousand flights in my life, right? I've never had this happen once, right? That's crazy. Yeah, she's like, she's to a bag. She's like, I'll walk you through immigration. I'll take you to the lounge. And she got chatty. She's like, you look taller in real life than you do on Instagram. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, hang on, my Instagram is private. How do you even see this to a start, right? I'm like, what else do you know about me? She's like, you know, we research all our important guests. And I'm like, I, like I'm not an important guest. I hadn't flown Emirates in many years, right? I'm a gold member, which is mid-tier. There's yeah. a lot more important people in the world than me, I can tell you. And then on that next flight, the cabin crew, it was, you know, 2 a.m. departure. I just wanted to sleep. So, I, you know, climb, blanket. And the crew were just insisting to try and feed me for the whole flight. And I, towards <laughs> the end, I'm like, okay, I'll just bring me something light. And they said, how about some fruit? Okay, I'll take some fruit. They come along with this fruit platter, which was oversized. And in like chocolate, they'd written on the plate. They'd like, welcome back. It's great to have you with us again. You know, I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, again, never had that in my life. Took a photo, obviously, put it online, got a gazillion likes. And here I am telling that story, right? So very memorable experience. A lot of great things to say. You know, I, like I'm not anyone special to the airline at all. You know, I'm just a normal person in that sense. 
but they definitely went well above and beyond. They had a great experience. And here I am, I'm the unpaid brand ambassador for the airline. Yeah, for real? Again, That's Emirates, if you're listening to this as well, we're yeah. talking about That's two deals we're going to get from this. Yeah. All the airlines are listening, like, is he going to mention us? Is he going to mention us? Emirates is like, what? score. Malaysia is like, yes. <laughs> so you can contact my agent. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Really interesting. Okay, maybe I'll become a golden run Emirates. Last but not least, I always like to end on a piece of advice. So is there a piece of marketing or life advice that someone shared with you once that has always stayed with you? Be a customer of your own product has really resonated with me over and over. I wrote an article, maybe it was 2010 or so, about Facebook having a terrible Android app. And it was a quote from Mark Zuckerberg, and they're saying he was, he'd forced all the developers working on that to get rid of their iPhones. All their jobs had to use Android phones, like in their personal lives. The concept was, and this was 12 years ago, everyone's addicted to Facebook and they're opening the app on the phone. And if the developer who can actually make changes to it is the customer of their own product. So if they're using the product, they're trying to upload photos and comment and stuff. If they see bugs or they see things they don't like, how could I make this easier? Because they're thinking technically, right? They're thinking, of upload a photo. They're thinking, that talks to this API that goes to this server and does it. That's how they're thinking. That's how they're wired, right? They go, geez, this is a bit slow. How can I make it faster? You know, they go to sleep, they wake up and they go, oh, I know the answer now, right? Yeah. And they fix it. So by forcing the developers to use Android phones, it actually made the Android app far superior. Even today, it's a lot better than the iPhone app just because of that. And I think it just comes down to being a customer of your own product because when you're immersed in it, when you're forced to use it every day, hopefully by choice, not forced, but using it every day, then you, start to think of ways to make it better, make it faster, make it, you know, and in that example, it made using the app and connecting, talking, sharing people better for billions of people around the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, even just the thinking behind it is so true because when you're building something for someone else, that's one perspective. But if you're building something that you're using yourself, it's a whole different perspective. So it's getting these different thinking caps on. And I think it's a nice reminder because that's also how you even got started with your whole business too, isn't it? Because you were a customer of these loyalty programs and all these airlines. So I think that's a nice reminder for any business owner out there just thinking about how to be the customer of their own product. And I love that. <laughs> exactly. And you're totally right. When you use your own product and you're coming from a different angle, when you're creating yeah. things, when you're designing things, your heart, it's in the product. And what that means is when you talk about the product, you tell other people, you're telling it from a different perspective. It's not just the corporate blah, 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 blah. You're saying, this is the why. You know, yeah. people, they resonate with that. They understand, ah, you're doing this because you're solving your problem, which yeah. actually solves mine as well. So yeah. everyone wins. No, it's so true. Well, thank you for sharing that piece of advice. And the entire conversation was one that I'm sure many of our listeners will be excited to hear about. So thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Really appreciate it. Retain the Customer Retention Podcast is brought to you by Gameball. To find out how you can turn visitors and occasional buyers into loyal, lifetime customers, head to Gameball.co. Make sure to subscribe to Retain the Customer Retention Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next time.